0: which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. When we were last on air two months ago, the coronavirus was a China problem. One story of many that we might have talked about on this podcast. Now it's the only story, and most of us are living very differently, thinking very differently than we were even a few weeks ago. Inevitably, Stephanomics is going to feel a bit different too, but our basic mission to bring you what's happening in the global economy and why it matters hasn't changed. In fact, it seems more important than ever. So later on, I'm going to talk to the American economist Adam Posen about how governments and economists have measured up to the challenge of this pandemic. But first, I am very grateful to James Mega, Zhu Lin and Jeff Black from Bloomberg's economy team in China for managing to produce this piece from the front lines of the battle to keep the global supply chain intact.
2: minute about how you get your household goods, or at least how you got them two months ago. You might have gone to a local store or you ordered them online and waited for delivery. That's all become a lot more difficult since COVID-19 spread around the world with billions of people now in various forms of lockdown. But what about the people who make these items and how do these things travel across the world? Here in China, There's a 30 million strong army of truckers who link the factories, markets, container terminals and warehouses of this country together. Now they're on the front line of the struggle against the coronavirus and its associated economic impacts. This is the Xinfadi agricultural wholesale market in Beijing, the size of 16 soccer fields, and there were trucks everywhere early in the morning on March 19. Every truck acts as a standalone sales booth. Chai Lili is a 36-year-old driver from nearby Hebei province, with a faux hawk haircut. He was playing with his phone in the driver's seat when we talked to him. Behind him was half a truck of oranges in boxes waiting to be sold. He told us about what he would be doing normally. Because of the epidemic, lots of factories haven't returned
3: to work. We have no other choices but to transport fruit. Fruit is all fresh and once picked, It needs to be shipped out right away, while factory goods can wait. Besides, there aren't many factory goods that need to be transported now anyway.
2: The market was a lot quieter than it would normally be, according to Chai. That's partly because movement in public in Beijing is still difficult due to the fear of infection and market demand remains suppressed. But there's an emerging problem now that will further crush demand for China's goods abroad, just as restrictions begin to be lifted and drivers return to the roads at home the spread of the disease around the world and the lockdowns in economies ranging from the U.S. to Europe. Lena Choi, senior vice president at Moody's, said the shock from outside of China is a bigger concern now.
3: We are in a very un- un- unprecedented situation when global supply chain is being disrupted. Um, and I think um, so far we have seen um, the, the supply chain and various in- industry in China recovering to a different extent or resuming uh, productivity to a various extent. but going out it's a little bit difficult to predict um, as the virus breaks out you know around the world um, what kind of ramifications and um, rippling impact that would have to bring back to China. I think now you know without the with very little visibility, on how long and how 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 fast evolving the situation is, I think it's a bit difficult. But I think it's um, it's 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 probably fair to say that sub, sub, supply chain disruptions is should should be expected.
2: The situation in China's transport industry has come full circle in just a few weeks. In February, during the immediate aftermath of the coronavirus shutdowns in Wuhan and other cities, even if you had goods to ship it was next to impossible to find someone to drive them. Xu Jupeng is head of logistics at Longyi, a solar panel factory in Shanxi in northwestern China. Xu says the industry is experiencing its biggest crisis in history. There were all kinds of unexpected and very serious abnormalities. The normal order of transportation was completely disrupted. Mr Shu, who we interviewed on March 9, is talking about the difficulties he encountered exactly one month before that, when trucks and drivers were in extreme shortage. At the time, he was urgently needing to ship raw materials to the company's factory in Vietnam. It relies solely on supplies from China, and it was about to run out of materials for production. If that were to happen, more than 2,000 workers would be sent home, and the company would suffer great losses. Xu managed to arrange a dozen trucks to deliver raw materials to a port in Qinzhou, a city in southern China near the Vietnamese border, where a ship bound for Vietnam was waiting. There was one hitch. The trucks weren't able to leave the highway in Qinzhou because all exits were closed due to virus containment roadblocks. Xu spent about 10 hours pulling strings with the local commerce Department and Customs Authorities before his fleet of trucks were allowed to exit the toll gate and clear customs. China's struggles to get back to work after its own virus shutdowns are likely to be repeated in other countries in coming months. The truckers we talked to said it's been a hard road, filled with risk and personal sacrifice. Wu Xiangfeng, who's 43 years old, is a native of Anhui province in the east, but he works far from his family in the south, in Guangdong. We spoke with him on February 26. He talked about the fear he felt while driving through the peak of the epidemic.
0: I'm
4: certainly worried. I wear my mask very tightly every day and replace it daily. For my family's living, I have to work. I don't have any other options. I have two sons at home. I'm the only breadwinner of my family. I have no other choice but to work.
2: Frequent temperature checks on highways during the peak of the outbreak in China slowed him down. And shuttered roadside restaurants made it hard to eat while on the move. All I hope is
4: for the epidemic to be over soon. This way I won't feel worried about infections when driving.
2: Wu's anxiety is the price for keeping even a fraction of a global economy operating and is in stark contrast to other professions which can work from the relative comfort of their own homes. Without people like Wu, supply chains would have come to a complete halt. Darren Tay, country risk analyst at Fitch Solutions in Asia, says the important role the logistics industry plays in the economy goes without saying. You can have your factories um, you know, produce the goods, manufacture, uh, export. In the end, you still require um, the logistics industry to move those goods around the world. Uh, so I would say um, definitely a very important uh, industry to have uh, as China tries to uh, recover from the economic disruption. The hardships that Chinese households have suffered seem to be just the beginning. All indications are that the impact of COVID-19 is far from over. The worst for the global economy is probably yet to come. And for China, if the virus returns, or even if it doesn't, the global downturn will prolong the pain. For Bloomberg News, I'm James Mega in Beijing.
0: You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists, Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any
1: time. So that was the road level view in China. Bit of a gear shift now because in this first episode of the new series, I thought we might step back to think about the economics of the coronavirus. How economists have responded to this very different kind of shock to the global economy and whether the right advice has been getting to governments as they try to cushion the blow. One of the best people I could think of for talking about all that was my old friend Adam Posen, who's been president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics since 2013 and also served for a while on the Bank of England's uh, interest rate setting committee. Adam, thanks very much for being with us from your book-lined office.
4: Thank you for having me, Stephen.
1: We're all living in a very different world from a couple of months ago or even a few weeks ago. How do you think economists have done uh, in first re- sort of assessing this shock and then thinking about how we respond to it?
4: I think economists have displayed both the strengths and the weaknesses of the profession. The strength of being relatively empirical and perhaps to people's surprise, having agreement on some basic principles in a policy context is very evident. So on the fiscal side, it's fascinating to watch not just Larry Summers or Jason Furman or Peter Belfingers or people on on the left calling for massive fiscal stimulus. It's also people on the right like Ken Rogoff and Glenn Hubbard in the US context who served in Republican administrations. There is 99% agreement that government had to be involved, it couldn't be just the central banks, and we had to think in terms of essentially bridge loans and job-preserving programs on an incredible scale. And I think that people should take some heart from that, that for all the talk about economists never agreeing on anything, in this case, the response was clear, and that certainly was true of the central banks as well. They're all pretty much on the same page, but of course, as you well recognize, and I View, to my shame cringing if you look back to what economists were talking about including myself in early february mid-february you know we were not seeing this coming our ability to forecast and our ability to think about what kinds of shocks are happening when remains very limited that was true before the 2008 crisis although a few people saw things coming and that's true again here so it's this combination of conditional on what happened Happens, I think economists are behaving well and getting the right advice out. But in terms of early warning and foresight, we're not doing that
1: well. Yeah, and I think it is. And of course, we've been going through the same exercise at Bloomberg. We had a we have a group of economists who were actually very close. We have great expertise in China. They were looking at the data. We had a sort of China back to the work back to work tracker when we were looking yeah. in January and February, and we were able to see quite early that the shock to the Chinese economy was bigger than people thought. And then we therefore, we were then thinking in terms of, oh, that's going to mean X or Y for the rest of the world. But it took a remarkably long time for us, or I think anyone else, to move from that to thinking, hang on a minute, it's not just going to be dealing with a shock from China. What if the whole world has to go through what China's going through now? And it does seem to me extraordinary that more people didn't make that leap until really quite, quite late, uh, including us. I mean, is that something about people just not being able to compute a, a total change of regime? Or what do you think is driving that?
4: I think two things are driving that, Stephanie. One is, as you say, it just required a willingness to think of things really deviating from normal. Economists talk about, you know, small, what the technical word, perturbations or movements around an equilibrium. And This is moving from one state of the world to another. And economists are just as bad on that as everybody else but I think another piece of it is ultimately fundamental which is the talk between people who do public health, who do pandemics and not just economists, but foreign policy people, market people, has been quite limited. I was talking to somebody from one of the world's largest, most successful investment funds, and they're one of those funds that sucks up every piece of big information that you know, big data that you know of. And even they didn't see this coming. They didn't make that mental transition, despite the fact that the person who owns this fund contributes to public health research. So I think it's just a human failing. It's a very sad human failing it is one that we've just had a failure of collective imagination
1: what's interesting is we have got to actually just in the last couple of weeks some of these conversations that had previously been on the sidelines now getting a bit more mainstreamed i suspect as people get frustrated with being stuck at home uh, about the trade-offs between the public health emergency and the economic emergency right. and i wonder what you think because there's there was uh, in, intuitively, uh, people said, well, we're, we're sort of putting the he- public health first in and the result is we're really killing the economy. And we know that and we're going to try and do all we can, but the, we're, we're prioritising the health. Um, but increasingly, people have said that it, actually it's better for the economy as well yeah, exactly. <laughs> not to have the pandemic. So do you think we had too long where there was a, a sort of false trade off there between the economy and the public health emergency? Yeah, it
4: was a very human thing to think of it in those terms, but it was very irresponsible of our political leaders in countries including the US, the UK, Brazil, and elsewhere to talk that way. The historical evidence has always been pretty darn clear going back to this flu pandemic of 1918, 1920, going back to the 1950s flu epidemic, going to natural disasters of this sort, that you do better over not even that longer run, a relatively short run, by doing what you need to control the damage. The damage is the real shock, the, the, the loss of human lives, the loss of human work hours, the capacity constraints on the hospitals and the medical system, the fear of people that is legitimate and the withdrawal of purchasing in from certain sectors and certain activities, those are all real. Those are gonna happen no matter what. And I think that's what people were reluctant to real you know, recognize and admit. Once you admit that, and once you admit that the real binding constraint for us all, in, even in the rich world, as we've seen in Italy and Spain, and now New York, is hospital capacity, medical system capacity, because you can't, it's like for a thousand-year flood, you can't always have enough medical capacity for this kind of pandemic on hand. Once you recognize that is the binding constraint for everything, then it just follows logically. And this is another place where I will say economists kind of got it right. The, the overwhelming majority, 95% of the immediately said, we're better off doing the medically induced coma for these sectors and it will pay off. And it's not because it's going to be wonderful, but it's because it's better than the alternative.
1: And the, one of the big bits uh, of advice, I guess, that's been particularly, you can see it particularly in the European government's efforts is this effort to, if you like, hold the economy in suspended animation. You know, everything, that the, the sort of, Bottom has fallen out of demand, um, and obviously a lot of businesses feeling that they will go under very quickly, seeing the kind of fall in, in the kind of fall in revenues that you don't get even in a really deep recession. Yeah. <laughs> if you're talking about ninety percent or a hundred percent in some cases, rather than even the worst kind of recession, which might see twenty or thirty percent fall in in demand. But the economists have basically said now, what you have to do is is fit, do what you can to fill that hole that's been blown into the economy so that the economy is then intact when you come out the other side. We know what we should be trying to do in principle. Do you think in practice we're going to be able to do that? Or do you think that there will be there will be permanent cost to this, even though we know there was nothing fundamentally wrong with the economy when right. we went into it?
4: I think you've hit the profound insight, step, which is that even more than a usual recession, this is something where there's abrupt sudden stop, and who falls apart in terms of businesses and jobs depends entirely on cash flow at that moment. It's not about sort of merit. Did you have a good product? Did you invest? Did you save enough? It's really just the side of economic death is, do you have the cash right now or do you happen to be in the wrong industry or the wrong place? And so the response that we've put together and I should say we, but I mean the, the community is put together, is really one about providing essentially a bridge loan for everybody. It's the goal to say, don't foreclose on mortgages, don't foreclose on loans, don't put people off of jobs if you can hold on to them, or if we, the government, we, the public, fund you to keep those jobs, because there is this reality that once something goes under, if it's a company, if it's a job place, and people leave, that it's very hard to rebuild. I mean, small businesses may be easier to rebuild, in fact, than than big businesses, because there's less capital involved, there's less reputation, there's less network. But nonetheless, you do have this permanent scarring. I think that we also have to think about it in terms of behavioral changes that persist. So we saw that after 2008 to 2010 or 2012 in Europe, where you had extended increases in female labor force participation extended rises in household savings. People were being holding off on uh, moving out of the house and building families or buying houses. These were all sensible, understandable, precautionary measures. I think we're going to see a lot of the same, but it's going to be biased towards or against, frankly, certain industries. We can talk about cruise ships. We can talk about nail salons. We can talk about uh, tourism. And that part is going to be permanent scars.
1: Well, if we're thinking about potential long term changes, you mentioned at the start that economists on the left and right actually had ended up having the similar advice for governments uh, in response to this crisis. And that was about spending a lot of money and doing a lot of things that they're not used to doing. Um, do you think that could also be a change, that the, the attitude to government could change and we could see even in the US a desire for government to take a bigger role and maybe also have better long-term safety net for gig workers and the like?
4: I think it will. I think there'll be pressure in that direction and I'm hopeful, but I also think this is gonna be much more contentious. I think that there will be, I'm already talking to people who say, again, not completely unreasonably, well, we don't wanna communize the system. We don't wanna have permanent ownership of government of all the main industries. But I certainly believe the US has a real opportunity and a real reason now to move towards more safety as you say, for its workers, for its people. And I think also what's become very clear with the changes in the unemployment regime in the U.S. is that we do have a lot to learn from Europe, that you need to make it so the jobs are not as fragile, as low connection, as you mentioned, gig workers, informal sector, part-time people, but also even full-time people in the U.S. tend to have much more tenuous Uh, support and connection to to, to their jobs at the lower end of the income scale. That should change. Uh, I use the term, I think, it's not a very sexy term, I guess, but I think we need to start thinking in terms of a buffer stock economy, that businesses, people, and especially government, create a, a reserve. And that reserve can be stockpiles of masks and medical equipment. That reserve can be money for people who temporarily lose their job, in this kind of crisis as opposed to quitting or
1: something else. Well, we could definitely see that also in the the healthcare sector. I guess my final question is, and it is true, having conversations like this about the proper role of government and what governments are currently doing in Europe to respond to the crisis has led a number of people to say that Europe might come out rather better from this pandemic than the U.S., do you think that's right or it feels very odd to be saying that Europe might come out ahead on anything, really, because we're so mm-hmm. used to saying it's a very sclerotic, inflexible economy with too large a role for the state and all these things. But is it possible that those things are actually going to be a, a competitive strengths, at least in responding to this virus?
4: I think it will. I think it should. I think it will, even before this virus crisis. The productivity gaps and especially the per capita income growth gaps between Europe and U.S. and U.K., say, were much smaller uh, as productivity has declined throughout the Western world in the last decade. And so then you have to keep asking yourself, well, if you're just having a much nastier economy, a much scarier economy, a much less equal economy, and now an economy much more vulnerable to disaster and illness, and when I say economy, I really mean the people, what are you getting for it and it is not clear at all that the u.s is getting anywhere near as much for that as they would like as we would like and so i think that discussion has to take place now uh that said europe is messing itself up in a different way by its unwillingness to share and mutualize risk across borders you know it's it's like new york and louisiana have to come together there is still very strong objection to sharing of risk within Europe. And so, yes, the European system, the European values, what they get for their greater government intervention versus what they give off looks increasingly attractive. But Europe, and the euro area in particular,
1: is starting to fail on a different basis. Adam Posen, thank you very much.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. Like everybody, we're working in unusual circumstances right now. and The programme might sound a bit different week to week, but we're certainly going to have plenty to talk about and Bloomberg reporters and economists are still hard at work. You can catch all the latest news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics on the Bloomberg News website or by following at Economics on Twitter. The story in this episode was written and reported by James Meger and Julie. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Jeff Black and Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks to Adam Posen. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy.